Welcome to My Big Safety Challenge, a podcast all about stories of safety leadership presented by Dale Carnegie and the Board of Certified Safety Professionals. Here are your hosts, Merle Heckman and Mike Palmer. Mike, it's another opportunity today to hear from a person of their experiences that could help us. What a great place to be, huh? We get to sit back and listen to these challenges and interact with professionals on how the real world of making a difference. And another solid guest. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited today about uh, David Sams joining the podcast. David is the Vice President of Risk Management for SBA Communications. Probably known David 20 plus years. Student of yours in a school? Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, when he was going into his career, he uh, was getting a master's in safety from University of Tennessee, and I was teaching a class, and, and that was late 80s, and known each other ever since. But David has really had some challenges of working in some very, very high-risk industries and leading those industries to uh, just everything from great value for the company in reduction of uh, workers' comp costs and, and the costs associated with accidents, but also building culture. Let's, let's listen in. Here we are at the Big Safety Challenge podcast. We are joined today by David Sams. Good morning, David. Good morning, Mike. I've had the very grateful knowing David a very long time. Um, David is currently the Vice President of Risk Management for SBA Communications and had a great career. And I, you know, came to mind as someone to be perfect for this because when I think of the challenges that you've had to face and the type of industries you've had, I just think you've just done a tremendous job of, of demonstrating how to lead those organizations. With that, Merle? David, thank you for being with us. When we think about a safety professional about yourself, there, there is normally some kind of story about how they got into it, the origin story. We'd like you to tell us a bit about that and how then that affects the way you lead and guide others, how that, that influenced your style. So get us started with your story, please. Wow, it's, uh, it's kind of crazy, Merle. I, was, um, I graduated from the University of Tennessee back in the 80s, and I was a football manager. Mm. And I, I learned a lot just through athletics and how to deal with people, mm. different types of people. Obviously, athletes are a little different, uh, <laughs> more so today than they were in the 80s. Yeah. But I was a public health major looking for something to do. Didn't I, you know, I got into it. I was going to coach like every other kid that played high school sports. And I started looking at the finances and thought that's not the way I want to go. And um, decided that uh, I had an opportunity to go to grad school at the University of Tennessee and, and remain on scholarship and continue work under the athletic department as they paid for my grad school. So. I made that decision. I thought it was pretty wise if I could extend my education. And, and back at the time, you know, safety really wasn't a big job. You know, you didn't see a lot of safety jobs in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, I think it was kind of the start, in my opinion, of the revolution of, of, of this country's uh, corporate safety outlook and, and labor uh, injuries mm. and statistics. And I had a mentor that 
encouraged me to go on into the safety program and University of Tennessee had a program yes. of, of that back then. So that's what I decided to do. And um, combined with athletics and my grad school, I kind of opened up a lot of opportunities when I when I graduated back in 91, I guess it was. Yeah. But um, that's kind of how I got into it. And I got into it uh, here in Knoxville is hired by a really big contractor. Um, by the name of Phillips and Jordan, who's located here. And um, they were a land clearing um, company. Uh, so they, they did a lot of large uh, site prep, mm. cleared trees, those kinds of things. Did a lot of work in the mountains, uh, a lot of dangerous work with chainsaws and cutting. And um, so that's where I cut my teeth and kind of got into to safety um, back right out of school. What was your first impressions of being involved with the safety of other human beings? What was going through your mind and your thought process? Well, it, it's um, in the beginning, it was it was kind of like drinking from a fire hose, really, um, because the attitudes back in those times were a little bit different than they are, at least today and in my industry that I'm in today. Um, but even back then, I had I had a strong commitment from the um, the owners of the company. It was a private company. Um, I had some opportunities that were presented to me that kind of um, kind of fast tracked me a little bit in my experience. Uh, we were I don't Hurricane Andrew hit, and people listening to this probably don't even remember Hurricane Andrew, but it's back in the early nineties. I believe it was ninety four, if I'm not mistaken, ninety two. August of 92, when Andrew uh, swept through South Florida and basically wiped it off the map. Um, and if you go back and look at some of the old YouTube footage of, of what happened after Andrew, it's, in my opinion, and I've seen every hurricane since, it's probably the worst, um, worst I've ever seen, worst environment I've ever worked in. And um, when you get into to working for the government, you obviously have a whole different set, set of standards you have to comply with. Um, you're working in a disaster, so you don't you don't have the comforts of an office every day or a field trailer for that matter, at least in the beginning, because there's no power. Um, and uh, we probably had five or six hundred contractors working for us at the time. And that's when I really got my feet wet trying to keep up with dump trucks, backhoes, bulldozers, uh, the public trying to get stuff off their property that they want to keep. We're trying to clean the property off so we can get it out and, and into the dump. Um, so it was it was very, very chaotic. You're doing all this without power. You're doing all this in streets with no traffic lights, no stop signs. You don't know where you are. Um, I mean, it's just it, it's like every day it's a it's a set of problems that you just don't you don't expect or you don't realize how important, um, you know, typical things in the in your daily life as a safety professional. Yeah. So it sounds like you well, you're, you're cutting your teeth on chaos and trying to bring sanity to chaos at the same time, keeping people safe. That's that's exactly right. Uh, there was all kinds of there were six big contractors that FEMA had, had had hired to do the cleanup, the majority of the cleanup after Andrew. And we were one of the six um, and we had a good reputation for safety. We were a couple of years into our program <clears throat> since I had started. But when you take on contractors, 
they're not your folks. They're not people that you deal with every day. Um, it's a different animal and trying to get them to understand the importance of paying attention, watching what you're doing, watch behind you, watch to the side of you, because there was heavy equipment going everywhere, every hour of the day in, in South Florida at the time. David, when I, when I think about, uh, working with you through the years, it's, you know, you went from one high risk to another high risk, right? I mean, you went from heavy construction disaster response, which is just crazy, crazy high risk because conditions and the environment that's going in and, and the schedule, right, of, of yeah. get, getting, at, getting back to normal. And even the land clearing work you did, a lot of that is because there was some kind of a collapse or avalanche of rock or whatever, and, they, and, they, and a highway's closed, right? Right. Then you think of SBA and guys 325 feet up in the air on a self-support, right? I mean, you, you don't get to do things wrong two, three times. You get to do things wrong one time. So leading safety in those type of high-risk industries, what kind of challenges uh, have you done that? And, and I guess more importantly, but, you know, what have you done to be successful with that and leading safety in those type of high-risk industries? You know, when I started at SBA, and it's no fault of their own, they were really a real estate company at the time. This was in September of 2000. They had just bought a services company in a small town in East Tennessee, Johnson City, Tennessee, where I just happened to have family there and caught wind of a job and, and I literally sent a, about a three-sentence, saw a three-sentence paragraph in a Sunday newspaper and applied for a job and got it. And when I took the job, it was very unique um, because they were transitioning into services work. And services work in the telecom industry is those folks that actually build and maintain cell towers across the uh, well across the country. And they had no safety program. They had never had a safety program. They never had a reason to have a safety program. Like I said, they were a real estate company. So I had the experience, uh, fortunately, and uh, when I took over, it was a, it was a matter of developing a complete, not only safety and health program, but a, a DOT program, environmental program, helping with insurance and understanding corporate insurance, which a lot of those higher ups at the time didn't have a lot of knowledge in how we should handle our insurance issues. Uh, because in telecom, guys, insurance is a little bit different. So that kind of played a role as well, obviously, with work at Heights. But the main thing that kind of kept me in check and kept me excited about the job was we had an incident the first week I was on the job that uh, we had a, a contractor fall 250 feet. And um, that kind of got everybody's attention. And so at that time, they kind of committed to, hey, look, we don't want this to be an occurrence that we deal with all the time. So whatever it's going to take to build us a quality safety program, we got your back. And there's not many publicly traded companies as we are today. And we have the same leadership today as I had basically 23 years ago that the CEO at the time and still CEO, Jeff Stoops, you know, he told me, we are not going to deal with this. So whatever you need, whatever support you need from the uh, executive team, we're going to give it to you. So uh, that's kind of how it started. And and on, I can honestly say, and I'm going on 23 years with SBA, never thought I'd be there that long. But the commitment that they made and the uh, the type of work atmosphere 
that we have built, the culture that we have built over the last 20 years has been really a testament to what it's really like and what's really needed to build any kind of program, but specifically safety, is you got to have your leadership from the top down. And I've had that my whole career there. And uh, I can assure you, if, if I didn't have that, I probably still wouldn't be doing this because the number of fatalities that I've I've had to participate in the uh, investigations not related to SBA employees is really astronomical. And it's it, it's something this industry has really worked hard on correcting over the over the years. Now, David, I'm just curious. You you sound like you were the right person at the right time that those people needed that they could turn to you and say, we want this. And you were able to guide them to it. What kind of advice would you give to somebody who has not gotten that type of leadership from the top and they need to make a difference? What have you seen and that you advise people, you've seen that to say, this are some steps that people could take? Because that's a challenge for many people. Well, you've got to be able to talk to those type of individuals. When I say that, CEOs, CFOs, COOs, presidents of companies, even the vice president level, you've got to be able to get them to understand that you're not a cost center, you're a revenue saving center. And every dollar we spend on safety comes off our bottom line. And being publicly traded, obviously, you know, we hold it to our shareholders to provide a healthy, safe work environment. And it comes with a cost, um, as does any other type of department you're running in a corporation, everything comes with a cost. But I, what I have been driven to do, and it's probably a lot more, I've, I've really gotten into the insurance part of it the last 10, 12 years, is I use my insurance premiums and claim dollars to show I'm not a cost center, I'm a revenue saving center based on the amount of money I can show you over time that I can save a company. They understand math very well at that level. And when you get to speaking dollars and you put the human aspect in it, man, I can show you files and files of accidents that I've investigated that there's no reason the accident should happen. And it's like Mike said earlier, when you're 300 feet in the air, you get one mistake and that's it. There is not a second chance. So that's that 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 plays heavy into it. And then the human aspect of it. We do our best to take care of our employees. We probably have. 1,600 employees across 16 countries right now. And, um, you know, that's one of our our uh, commitments is um, to make sure we provide a health, healthy and safe work environment for everyone, not just our field, but office employees as well. David, we, we think of this idea of selling um, safety to leadership, and you've alluded to that already. Could you give us a specific situations where either you or somebody you've guided that has been able to sell a key point just so our listeners could hear what that really looks like. I'll give you a great example. About 10 years ago, we buy the the best fall protection equipment that's available. And I work with vendors all the time on redesigning tower harness. Tower harnesses are different than your regular harness. Um, it's just the way they're built. They're more comfortable. Imagine you're dressing somebody to, like I said, work 300 feet in the air for eight hours a day. And literally, they don't they go up and don't come down. I mean, they stay the whole day. 
so one of the things that he was our president at the time, Jeff was out doing some roundtables at different offices, and and one of the complaints came up about they didn't like the safety harness. And immediately he picks up the phone and calls me, and he says, David, I've got some complaints about the type of harnesses we're using right now. He goes, are these the Cadillac of the industry? And I said, well, Jeff, yeah, they are. I said, but there's some newer models coming out. They just haven't hit the market yet. He goes, when will they be out? And I said, well, I'm working with a couple companies. He said, I want the best equipment that these guys can wear when they're up in the air. I want the best harness, the best lanyards, the best cable grabs, the best carabiners, the best ropes, whatever it takes. I want these guys to feel comfortable when they put on their safety equipment and climb a tower that they know if they use it properly in the way you train them, then they'll get to come down at the end of the day and go home and come back and do it again tomorrow. And that really resonated with me. And I kind of spoke that message for a while as part of my training message. And it wasn't so much me having to convince him. We have employees out there that we care about, that we listen to, and we try to do our best to prevent that dreaded phone call where somebody basically dove off a 300-foot tower. And and Jeff was very responsive and has always been. Hey, David, and and it makes me think of uh, something I want you to talk a little bit about, that uh, as safety professionals and safety leaders, is always a huge challenge is that whole communication and training part, right? Getting feedback from people, training people on the risks of the job on the specific equipment, how to properly use it, the limitations of that equipment, right? I mean, that's a that's a huge thing in your industry, right? Not only understand the protection of that equipment, but what are its limitations as well? So could you tell the listeners about a little bit about Tower University and how you developed it and what it does? We bought a office, a warehouse in Pelham, Alabama. And at the time, we were having a lot of fatalities in the industry. Um, we had just had one at a facility at a site of ours. Uh, it was really probably the worst one I've ever seen. Jeff came to me and said, "Look, we own this building in, in Alabama. Can you put together a training facility? And can we bring in all of our new employees and put them through at least a week long training class and cover quality, which is big, in, which is also really big in telecom. Quality is safety." First aid, CPR, AED, can you provide all the training that we need to really get somebody started in an apprenticeship role, really, and help them move along in their in their job and career at SBA through Tower University? And that's why he wanted to name it was Tower U. So that's what we did. We built a large training room on top of a mezzanine that we have. Um, it's as nice as it is. I mean, it's Every every station has a laptop. We use a smart board. We every bit of technology that we can use, we have it in our training room. But we also put a sixty foot self support tower out back that we could practice on. And then a couple of years later, we added a, a monopole, about a thirty foot monopole inside the warehouse. And the same with uh, a portion of a guide tower. So that, those are the three type towers that we typically deal with. At the same time, we used what mezzanine space we had left and built out a rooftop. We manage probably six or 7,000 rooftops across the U.S. So we do a lot of rooftop work, too, on high-rise areas. Think of hotels, motels, big cities. We work on top of those rooftops. So um, my staff and I got together. We put the curriculum together, a syllabus, 
kind of petitioned to OSHA with it to let it let us create our own 10 hour kind of telecom style. Um, we train uh, tower safety rescue, uh, which is really big in our industry. So we put them through 40 hours of uh, probably about 20 hours of classroom and another 20 hours out working on towers, teaching them how to climb, how to rescue, self-rescue, how to rescue your buddy if something happens on the tower. And that's where the whole thing evolved. And actually in October this year will be our uh, Tower U 10th year anniversary, which we expect to, uh, to probably put through 100 people this year. And yeah, it's been a great asset to us. Now we've actually, Mike, we're redoing it uh, beginning in July. We're going from one week to two week training just be- because of uh, of the need that's in the industry. That's a big price tag. Oh, it's a huge price tag. Pulling those people out of the field, right? Yeah. You guys got resources to it. You got a tremendous amount of capital invested in that. So not just your CEO, but how do you get leadership below that to buy into that? You know what, Mike? It was their idea. This was operations idea. What's changed with a sales site and what makes quality so important and what makes our employees so important is in in the beginning of time with cell towers, all the equipment was on the ground. And all you had up top was the antennas that you run by coax. Well, 5G, all the equipment has kind of moved from the ground and it's built into the antennas. So now, instead of having a technician on the ground working, you gotta have somebody that can climb, and not only climb, but you gotta have a technician that knows when they get up there, you know what they're looking for. And that's a different combination in our industry right now. It's trying to find people to climb that have the skills to do the quality and the technician work. Um, so that's one of the reasons we, we we're going to a two week program to really drive home not only the safety portion of it, but the quality portion as well. David, when, I, when I've heard you describe that, there's a couple of Dale Carnegie principles that stand out that I'll mention to you and let you relate that. First of all, there's a principle called make the other person feel important and do it sincerely. So when I've heard what you're talking about, it would seem that your employees could believe that they are important to your organization. What else would you add of how you've done that and what do you believe that means to the people? And then what do you believe it means to them and how it affects their safety? I've actually looked at some of the principles from the Dale Carnegie um, handout that I have here. And there's a lot of things, actually, that kind of mix and match into what's going on in my career over time. But one is the most important, I think, is take care of your employee. And I have always had the feeling that if you can make someone feel important, then they start to feel important. I'm very fortunate that I have a group that works for me that are all extremely talented trainers, and they have a way of connecting. And when you climb the tower with someone who's never climbed before, it's a trust factor. So if I can gain the trust of someone and show them that their life is important, and they learn to trust you and being up in the air with them, hands on with everything they do, really builds that trust. Obviously, folks are listening to this podcast and they don't deal with some of the high height safety that you have to deal with, but they're in their own field. They're having to deal with that. What do you find continues to build that trust 
that employees look to their supervisor, look to their management team, look to the upper management, and the employees say, I can trust these people. And that enhances the whole thing. What else have you seen, David, that really helps people grasp that? Uh, you got to build a relationship. I mean, that's that's the key is relationships. I think it's key to anything we do in any profession is building relationships. It doesn't matter where you sit in a company. You have to be able to build relationships with people. And it's a trust factor. I don't care what anyone says. If they can trust you, they'll believe in you mm-hmm. and they'll listen to you and they'll try to do what you ask them to do. So that's one of the, the key things is building the relationships. The other thing I always tell people, even in manufacturing or heavy construction, is everyone thinks differently. Everyone thinks about safety differently. Uh, Mostly, they just think about themselves. We constantly enhance the buddy system Mm -hmm. because usually we have two people in the air at a time, and they have to trust each other. So if something happens to one of them while they're up there, the other one's got (laughs) to, you know, that... That's the guy that's got to get them off the tower and get them down to safety. And the same thing on lines in manufacturing. Guys, you look at the, you, you got to watch for machine guarding. You got to watch for different things that go on in a line uh, in a manufacturing plant. And it's a buddy system. I mean, the, the people you work close to uh, are the ones that keep an eye on you and you keep an eye on them. And to me, that's the way to have a complete safety program. When everybody's watching each other, the chances of something happening, a mishap, in my opinion, the percentages are much lower. That's that principle, become genuinely interested in other people. And David, you can comment on this, but it sounds like you've helped your people realize it's not just the safety director, it's each other, that we are looking out for the well-being of interest in them. Absolutely makes a difference. And I have that relationship with all my guys. The people that work for me, I have that same relationship with them. Talk about that. Talk about how you how you've developed your staff to be safety leaders. How do you develop that with the people that work for you to where they're emulating what you what you want to see? Uh same way I would with a tower climber or a VP. It's a relationship. And I like to think of it as it's a kind of we're all, we're all our own little family. We're like our own little consulting firm. And that's how I sell it to my guys. And SBA is our client. They just happen to pay us, too. And that's, that's the same message I give people out in the field. Look, we all get paid by the same guy at the end of the week. So we're not out here to beat you up. We're not out here to police you. Now, we'll stop you if we see something that needs to be corrected. But we're going to give you a chance to fix it. And with your training and the knowledge that we've given you, nine times out of ten, the guys know they what they did wrong and they can fix it. Um, and I've kind of built that into my people. You know, we don't stop. We don't shut down work. OK, unless there's an accident, a serious accident. We stop work. We correct the action. We correct the whatever out, out of whack. Put a plan in place. We address it. And we let them go on about their business. And that's the way I handle my people. You're in charge of when you're on a site doing an audit, whether it's our employees or a contractor, it's your job, one, to make sure the site's safe. Two, if there's an issue that whoever's in charge understands what the issue is. And three, what's the corrective measure? 
And 99% of the time, once you correct it and they understand the problem and you do it in the right way with the right attitude, it won't be a problem again. And that's kind of how we built our whole program. And it's been my people that work for me that drill this in out in the field. David, when you look at those principles again, especially the last set where it's talking about how do you lead people and humans who are prone to make mistakes, let the other person save face. Talk about your own mistakes before criticizing, correcting the other person. How do you see principles like that woven into what your folks are doing as they work with your people? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting, actually, Moral, because the way my department is set up, I have a set of, of managers or directors, managers, depends on where they are. And then I have field techs. And my field techs are the ones that really are out in the field every day. They're in a market or a region. They know all the players. They know all the employees. Because most of the employees that, that, that have been with us a long time understand what our philosophy behind safety is. I mean, it's the first thing that's talked about on Monday morning. It's the first thing that's talked about when you show up at a job site. So it's really drilled into them. And I think it's important that when you have a group of people that do what we do and they all understand the dangers that are behind it or in front of them, it becomes kind of a brotherhood, really. But I think the driving principle behind it is have a commitment from the top, have a commitment from my level, and make sure that my level of commitment is passed down all the way through my organization. And my field techs do a great job communicating and have and, and literally have friendships with a lot of these guys. Uh, all of our phones are on 24-7. My phone's on 24-7. Um, and we get calls all the time asking questions about safety or questions about family. So we really try to drive that personal aspect. Let me, let me dig a little deeper right there. So the balance of a safety professional, right, is the enforcement part, right? Correct. Lay the law and say, if you're not going to wear that harness, you're, you're, go, you're going in the house. You have to have some very strict rules, especially in high risk, right? So you've, you've got some things where you're just hardcore with enforcement on. But you also, there's the personal side, right? Then you talked about the relationships that your field techs will develop with the climbers and kind of the personal side of that, right? And positive reinforcement, right? So you've already mentioned going out and acknowledging the people when they've done something and kind of reinforcing that. Talk to me about that balance and how you train your staff to strike that balance. We do a lot of things outside of the site. We do t-shirt giveaways. We do pizza lunches. They may do other things. And if, if my guys are in a market, I expect them to be with the crews. If they're out at night, buy them dinner. If they're out at lunch, buy them lunch. It all goes back to relationships. If you can get that one-on-one tie-in where you can sit, and it doesn't have to be in a work environment, you have to be able to communicate with people and be passionate about what you do, be forceful in what you do, but also understand there's a job to be done, and these are humans that make mistakes. You just don't want to make the big mistake. That's where we we really concentrate and focus on. Don't make the big mistake. I can handle strains and sprains. I can handle ankles and wrists and cuts. We get a lot of cuts in our industry. 
it's that big accident that you're trying to prevent. And the only way to do that is to drill it over and over into them. You've got to learn how to trust your buddy, trust your equipment, trust the company. Well, it sounds like you do another principle, talk in terms of their interest yes. and what's important to them. Yes. Um, uh, David, when we had an earlier conversation, uh, we were talking about building that culture, as you've been describing. And there was a statement that we, we wrote down that you said is about emphasizing to people that this is about their lives. Would you expand on that a little bit more? Because that's a pretty key thought. It is about their life. And we do some training things that probably are kind of abnormal <laughs> for a typical training person. I mean, I've got files of, of pictures of people that have fallen. I've got pictures of a widow and three small kids. You know, we talk about what the legal process is if something were to happen. And you wouldn't believe, Merle, how much attention that they they kind of pay to you when you start talking about their family. Wow. Yeah, it's it's really something because we, we talk about that because a lot of the guys in the industry, you know, they hop around. They, you know, it's a it's a tight knit community, so to say, and um, they they hear about fatalities. They see and read what's out there when it happens. And we've been fortunate in the industry the last few years has been minute the number of serious accidents we've had. Mm. And that's a good thing. But you have to drive that point home. And, and to me, when you start talking about their family, their kids, it gets their attention. And you emphasize, look, this is for your good. This is for your family. Everything we teach you and train you to do is so that at the end of the day, you get to go home, come back and do it again tomorrow. Mm. And that's one of our training messages is, you know, nobody gets up in the morning kissing their spouse goodbye and say, hey, I'm going to work and I won't be home today. No. But if you look at the numbers across the in any industry, if you just look at the number of workplace fatalities, uh, I mean, there's multiple fatalities every day in this country related to work accidents. And that's the point I try to drive home. Principle 17, you're trying honestly to see things from the other person's point of view. So you're not trying to say, look what we as a company need to do. We've got to do this to be successful. You're trying to say, employee, your point of view, what's important to you? What would it be like if we had to go talk to your family and say you're not around anymore? And when you're seeing through their point of view, David, that's a huge difference. Uh, it's a difference maker. Unfortunately, I have a lot of experience doing that. So when I stand up there and tell them about me in the last 20 years at SBA and the number of fatalities in our industry and the number of fatalities I've investigated and the number of ex-wives and girlfriends and kids I've had to look at in the face. Yeah, it's a real story. It's, it's, there's nothing made up about it. And there's claim after claim after claim I can point to. And, um, you know, if that doesn't get your attention, then, you know, you probably shouldn't work for us. <laughs> hey, David, you, you and I have talked in the past. You know, I like love talking about risks and being risk versus compliance driven, right? Yeah. So if you look back at, uh, you know, your time P&J, your time SBA, what's benefited you more, being risk driven or compliance driven? Wow. It's a, you know, it's kind of a scary balance, Mike. Probably risk. When I talked about being a revenue savings center, 
that's what saves the money is managing claims, managing risk, uh, understanding risk transfer and contracts. That's kind of where I'm at today. And I kind of let my my staff handle the compliance part. But everything they do, I drive risk into it. You know, what do we do to mitigate the risk? What do we do to save dollars? I don't want to spend money on things I don't need to. If I can spend money on things we need, not want. But I'll never do this. I'll never skimp on training, on standards, on equipment. Those are all things that are in the forefront of my mind. But I'm more driven by risk management now, uh, being where I'm at with SBA. What do you think, Merle? You think he's ready for rapid fire? I believe he's worked his way up to that level. (laughs) We're going to throw down a challenge and see if he's ready for it. He just got the risk versus compliance question, right? I I think he's ready for the next step. All right, David going to throw at you uh, three rapid fire questions. I want just the first thing that comes to your head and just kind of a, a brief answer to each. You ready for Is this? Is there a beat button back there somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brace yourself, sir. Brace yourself. Uh, all right, here we go. First question. So when you look in your role as a, a safety leader through the years, give me a, a high point, right, where you – did something a certain way or something work through like you wanted it to. And you just really felt good about, man, that's, that's my high moment. Wow. Probably several, Mike, honestly, from the safety standpoint, I would say it was back in the beginning. When we first started at SBA, after I hired about three or four people, we took off on a country wide trip teaching tower safety and rescue from one end of this country to the other and it took us about six months and once we completed that and then we looked at the number of people that we had trained who had never really been trained in in fall protection it was a big moment for us it really was because it set the tone for the next 21 years everybody understood where we stood as 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 a company, obviously with the backing that I've always had. But they also kind of got to understand how we are out in the field away from the office, how we can cut up, how we can have fun and still train and be serious. We were on the road five nights a week for six months. And that was uh, kind of one of those moments when we finished. It's like, damn, guys, we did a good job. We're on the right foot don't lose the momentum and that's where our program kind of took flight that's great that's great all right flip the coin give me a low point february 1st 2014 in west virginia um yeah i was gonna say i know what that is yeah we had a bad accident bad accident up on the side of a mountain we had a contractor on site they made some serious mistakes and we had caused a 350-foot guide tower to come down. There was four people attached to the tower at the time it collapsed. And uh, two of them didn't survive. Two of them did with some obviously serious, serious injuries and some other mental things that came out of it. When the tower collapsed, there was actually another tower not 20 feet from it, about the same height. It hit the guide wire of the other tower, so it rendered it unstable. Well, there was a 
fire department, volunteer fire department that showed up trying to help. And one of the firemen went in about the time the second tower collapsed and hit him. Literally spent months up there with every regulator there is from Washington that could be descended on a small town in West Virginia. I'm talking about OSHA engineers, state OSHA, I mean, area directors, the worst three or four months of my life. Yeah, I think I knew the answer to that when I asked you it, because I remember that time with you. The last one is, um, and this doesn't need to be specific to your industry and whatnot. One of the things I really like about the whole thought about this podcast is kind of paying it forward, right, and helping those next round of leaders in safety. If you were going to pull one of them aside or you hire a new one and you're going to give them a couple pieces of sage advice as far as leading safety, what, what, what would you tell them? Uh, be confident, be knowledgeable, be vocal, stand your ground. Um, I think anyone that does what we do, Mike, out there, you know, you got to have a lot of faith in yourself. You got to be willing to take risks sometimes that uh, may not pay off the way you want them to. And sometimes it does. But I would tell a college student or a a recent graduate that if you're going to get in to the safety profession, I mean, there's highs and lows, just like, I guess, any job. I wouldn't have done anything else. But be patient also. Be willing to work hard. Be willing to do anything. And it, to me, it goes back to the, what I've tried to drive home uh, during this whole hour is you've got to build relationships. And the best way to do that is to build it with the people that need it most. And those are the people out in the field. Because that's where your hazards are. That's where your losses occur. Make sure they understand the task for the day, the hazards that they're trying to avoid. And if you beat on that day after day after day, it becomes secondhand nature to them, and it makes you look good. Well said. Well said. Hey, David, this has been great. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us and spend time with Merle and I and telling us everything from your origin and how it formed who you are, but how you're forming tomorrow's safety leaders and also keeping people safe that are doing a really dangerous job every day. Thank you for what you've shared. I think it's been really, really helpful to our listeners. David, when I think of what you've said here, you all haven't just talked, you've acted. Yeah. You've talked the right talk, but you've backed it up with putting the dollars into it, the training, the time, the care. So talk is cheap, but you all have lived it out. And that's a great example for people not just to talk, but to do. So thank you very much for the example. You're welcome, Merle. And of course, Mike, always thank you. And uh, hey, look, you know, what we do every day is different. And it's what makes the world better. Thanks, David. Best wishes. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Few people work in an industry like that where one step away that type of mistake could be the end of somebody yeah you talk about a guy that's got to live on pins and needles he has been uh, a director of safety at two companies that have such high risks he has managed to um you know when he told his stories today how he's managed to work to get buy-in from those companies and how they were even going to him, right? And saying, I don't want this ever happening again. 
And just just that whole takeaways of how well he balances the people part, like we've heard from others, right? The people part and, and realizing what can happen and appealing to people's mindset that way, but also looking at the value you got to bring to your company, right? And the accidents cost money. Injuries cost money. What impressed me was their commitment. They just didn't talk a good talk. They said the right things, but they backed it up with their people. The people saw these people are interested in who we are. They're interested in our lives, and they're going to commit their resources to help us be ready to be safe. Solid lessons today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening to My Big Safety Challenge, a podcast produced in partnership by Dale Carnegie and BCSP. With your hosts, Dale Carnegie Master Trainer, Merle Heckman, and Mike Palmer, Principal at NSAFE. Executive produced by Charlie Eltringham. Supervising producer, Michael Escobedo. Audio engineering and editing from Jesse Gray and Giachi Liu. Editorial support from Tyson Matthews. Consulting producers are Colin Brown and Mark Sullivan. To have new episodes delivered directly to you, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. If you would like to share your story of a safety leadership challenge you faced, email us at info at mybigsafetychallenge.com. See you next time.